Would you turn your Bibles this evening to Judges chapter 10? Judges chapter 10. After God delivered Israel through Gideon, Israel had rest for 40 years. Gideon, however, didn't finish very strongly. He set up a harem of wives. He crafted a golden ephod, which became an idol for the people. And while the Scriptures record his failures, overall he was a man of faith. But as is often the case, one man's vice is his son's embrace. In other words, the wickedness that is only allowed by one generation is often embraced by the next generation. And that was the case for Gideon. And that was the case for his son Abimelech. Abimelech took Gideon's well, we could say minor failures, and he took them to an extreme and thirsted for power so much so that he killed his brothers in order to establish his position as king. And we, we saw the life of Abimelech last week when we looked at chapter 9. And we saw that as a leader, he led the, the nation into wickedness the turning away from God, the following of false gods, the adoption of pagan practices were all embraced by a nation of people who rejected God's leadership. They were happy to follow a man who was wicked to the core. What was the solution? How would Israel ever get out of this mess? How would they get out of the me- the me- this mess that they had gotten themselves into? Well, we know the answer, don't we? The long-term solution is that they needed a deliverer. They needed a perfect deliverer. Because even the best of deliverers in the lifetime of those who lived during the period of the judges was inadequate. Because even the best ones died. And so they needed a deliverer who would lead them in justice and mercy and who would like would be promised to David who would live forever. But they couldn't force that to happen. And they had to wait on God for Him to send a deliverer like that. So what could they do about the mess in the meantime? If, if this perfect deliverer hadn't come, what could they do? And the answer is that they needed to turn to God. They needed to repent. They needed to turn from their sins and turn to God. That's what repentance is. They needed to acknowledge their sin before God. Recognize that they were experiencing self-inflicted consequences and that the only way to be reconciled to God was not outside of them. That is, it's not something that, you know, we'll just wait and see what happens. It was inside of them. They needed to repent. They needed to acknowledge their sin. And friends, the answer for the situation that we face in our day, that our country faces in our day, is no different. Do you find yourself in a mess of your own making? There are lots of kinds of messes. Sometimes we get into messes that are not of our own making. Just part of the nature of life or part of the trials that come our way. But sometimes, and many times I would say, we make our own messes. And if you're in that situation, then you need to acknowledge your culpability, turn from your sins, and be restored to God. That's what chapter 10 is all about. It's about repentance. So let's read 
this chapter, chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now after Abimelech died, Tola the son of Puah, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, rose to save Israel. And he lived in Shamer in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel twenty-three years, and then he died and was buried in Shamer. After him, Jair the Gileadite arose and judged Israel twenty-two years. He had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys, and they had thirty cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havath Jair to this day. And Jair died and was buried in Canaan. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also when the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. God delivers those who genuinely repent. God delivers those who genuinely repent. In verses 1-5, through we see that God delivers through lesser judges. In the book of Judges, I said when we first started that there are 12 judges. Five major judges, that is, they they have some explanation about what's going on in their lives. And seven minor judges. These are two of the minor judges. So far, we've seen three major judges, Ehud, Deborah, and Gideon. And we've seen two minor judges, Othniel and Shamgar. And we're going to see two more minor judges today, which will bring our total to seven. And that will leave us with two major judges, Jephthah and Samson, and then three minor judges. So let's think about these two minor judges that, that, will, uh, that are in our passage today, verses 1 through 5. First, Tola. Abimelech had died, says there in verse 1. Abimelech was a bramble, an unworthy leader. He rose up as a leader because other capable, worthy leaders failed to lead. So instead, they got a bramble, a pain in the neck for farmers. He was a cutthroat leader. He killed his own half-brothers to get his position of power. 
And his younger surviving brother, Jotham, prophesied that Abimelech and his people would burn each other up. Well, Abimelech received word that he was being betrayed, and so he set out to destroy the very people that he was leading, the Shechemites. And he killed many of them. He burned their towers. He tried to do the same in Thebes, but you remember a lady dropped a 100-pound millstone on his head and he died. Israel had fallen on pretty rough times under, under some unstable, unstable leadership. Now, before Abimelech, they had the stable leadership of Gideon. But now they come to a place where they need to be rescued. They need to be rescued from the oppression of their enemies. And we don't know what kind of oppression that they're facing here at the beginning of chapter 10. We don't know what's going on specifically, but apparently God raised up these two men to deliver Israel at a period of time following Abimelech. And this man is a man by the name of Tola, and we don't really know a whole lot about him except for that he judged Israel, delivered Israel for 23 years, and then he died. And along comes verses 3-5, through Jair. Now, Jair was apparently a wealthy judge and a wealthy deliverer. The 30 sons suggest that he had a harem of wives and so was probably a powerful king. But it also, we also see that he was a wise judge. Notice verse 4, he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and they had 30 cities. Remember what Jesus rode in on at His triumphal entry? As a donkey, right? When He... When he comes again, he'll be riding on what? Not a donkey that this time. It'll be a horse, which is a symbol of what? Battle. The battle It's a symbol of battle, but when a person would come in riding on a donkey, it was a symbol of peace. And so the fact that Jair has 30 sons who are riding on 30 donkeys suggests that he's brought this land over which he has charged to a time of peace. And apparently it's a, it's a significant portion of land because there, there are these 30 cities. But as has been the case throughout the book of Judges, once a judge or a deliverer dies, what happens? The very same thing that we read about in verse 6. Israel turns their backs on God. Israel turns back into the sin that they were once rescued from, they were often rescued from, and the cycle repeats. And what does God expect of them in order to get out of the cycle? He expects them to cry for help. He expects them to repent. And so in verses 6-18, through 18, we see that deliverance comes through genuine repentance. Deliverance comes through genuine repentance. Here we have the cycle. Start over again. Verses 6-9, through 9, the first part of the cycle, evil. Followed quickly by, beginning in verse 7, oppression. So evil and oppression... Verses 6-9. through nine. Look at the extent of their evil in verse 6. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistine. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. See this? They're serving false gods. And in the process, the end of verse 6 says that they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. They forsook the true and living God. 
Now, you, you may just kind of pass over all these gods that they're serving, but what you need to consider is that each one of these gods comes from a land from which they were oppressed. They were once oppressed by the land that served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. You know which land that was? It was the Canaanites. They were oppressed by the Canaanites. The gods of Aram. The gods of Sidon. The gods of Moab. So all of these lands once were their oppressors. And as God delivers them, they cry for help. God delivers them. Apparently what's happening is they're hanging on to all the gods of the land. They've started to become assimilated to them. The reason I know that is because verse 11 Here's the Lord's argument for them. When they cry for help, and it seems to be kind of a weak cry for help, like, please, it's your time to do this. We'll talk about that when we get there. But verse 11, the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Manites? And many of these groups are the same groups from which they have their gods in verse 6. I mean, think of it. They turn away from God, start doing evil. Apparently, some of the evil that they're doing is starting to uh, enculturate themselves in a bad way, adopting the gods of the, the, the false of the, of the nations that serve the false gods. They adopt these gods of their own, and then they start getting oppressed by these God, by the by these nations. Then they cry for help. God delivers them, and we would expect them to destroy all the idols. All the false gods from that nation, let's say Moab. And yet what's happening here, we're in chapter 10 now. Several hundred years later, a couple hundred years probably. And they're serving the false gods that God once delivered them from. So what does God do? Verses 7-9. through He brings about oppression in order to wake them up. He brings about oppression in order to wake them up. Notice how the, the oppression is described in verse 7. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and He sold them. To sell something means to transfer ownership. And so, God is transferring ownership of Israel in some way to, what does verse 7 tell us? To the hands of the Philistines and the hands of the sons of Ammon. Now, God was going to deliver them from both of these, so don't think that God's completely abandoned them. God's going to deliver them from the Ammonites through the next major judge, Jephthah, and God's going to deliver them from the Philistines from the final major judge, which is who? Who who delivers Israel from the Philistines? Samson. Okay, so God's going to deliver them, but what He's saying right now is because you've fallen into evil, because you've jumped in, head first into evil, I'm selling you. I'm transferring my ownership over to the Philistines and the Ammonites. Now, God didn't completely abandon them. And He did not forget His promises to them. We'll talk about that here in just a second. The oppression from the Ammonites lasted for how long? Look at verse 8. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. And for 18 years, they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan. Well, where did this leave Israel? 
They have moved toward evil. God sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. And this left Israel, at the end of verse 9, greatly distressed. So what does a nation who has been oppressed on and off for the previous 300 years do? They've seen this before. They've been down this road before. They've committed evil in huge ways. They've been oppressed for long periods of time. And so they know what to do. They know their history. They know that their forefathers would cry out for help. And that's what they do in verses 10 through 15. They cry for mercy. Israel does the only thing that they know how to do when being oppressed. They cry for mercy. But I would suggest to you, based on God's response, that their cry for help was not genuine. It was weak. It was not real. Look at the cry for help in verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against You, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. Now look at God's response in verses 11-14. through The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians? And the Ammonites, or the Amorites, excuse me, the sons of Ammon and the Philistines, and also when the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen, let them deliver you in the time of your distress. Can you turn this uh, lapel Eric, can you turn this lapel mic down a little bit? So God's response is that go to your gods. Go to your false gods and see if they deliver you. It's almost as if Israel is treating God like a genie in a bottle. They've seen this before. When they fall into evil, or when they go into evil, fall sounds like it's an accident. When they commit great acts of evil, and then God sells them to these oppressors, they know what to do. They just rub the bottle and out comes God. And here He's there to give them their wish. God says, why don't you go try doing that to your false gods? See if they'll deliver you. You still have them all in your homes. You've set up all your shrines around your camp. Go to them. Try seeing if they're going to deliver you. And that's what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. It does not lead to repentance. God doesn't, and God sees right through it, doesn't He? He knows their hearts. He knows exactly what they're doing. God effectively says, listen, to forsake the false gods means to get rid of them. They don't want to turn from serving the false gods. You don't want to turn from false gods. You want deliverance just from the consequences. You want deliverance? Then set your false gods aside. Otherwise, go to them and ask for help. Otherwise, your oppression will not be removed. Israel had adopted the false gods of Aram in chapter 3. But God sent oppression, so they cried to God for help. But did they genuinely repent? Well, after Othniel delivered them, guess what happened to all the false gods? They kept them. And the reason we know that is because in verse 6, they're still serving the gods of Aram. The same thing happened with all these other false gods. 
And this happens over and over and over again. They fall into evil by adopting the false gods in the nation. God lets them have what they want, the fruit of their desires. And along with that comes the slavery that there is to these false gods and the nations that control them. And so they cry out for help and God delivers them time and again but they go right back into serving those false gods. And God says, are you really repentant? Are you really serious about this cry for help? Because I've delivered you from all these nations and you still forsake me. You follow the gods of the nations still. Notice what he says at the end of verse 13. Don't miss this. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Now, again, this is not a promise of total abandonment. It can't be because he's going to rescue them in chapter 11 with Jephthah. So he's not saying, I will no longer deliver you. It's final. I'm done with you. This also can't be a trick on the part of God in order to kind of drum up the right kind of feelings within the people of Israel. God doesn't work that way. Instead, this is referring to what I would call a conditional abandonment. That is, as long as you serve these false gods, don't expect me to come to your rescue any longer. I will no longer I will no longer rescue you. I will no longer deliver you. I will no longer show you my favor as long as you keep these false gods. And that's why the next phrase verse 14 says this, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Go and call the false gods and see how that works out for you. But if you're serious about calling out to help from from me, to get help from me, then get rid of them. I demand exclusive worship. God doesn't want their canned cry of distress. You know, we need to put this recipe of deliverance together because we're in oppression right now. And so let's just pop open this can of, uh, of crying for help. And then God's going to do something. And what God knows, and what we know, they don't want God for God. They want God for His ability to remove the consequences of their sin. And so for us, we must not presume upon God's grace. We can't just call upon God's grace as if it's at our disposal and we can just kind of pour it out on us whenever we want as if we're making a wish from a genie. We need genuine repentance. We need a genuine cry for help. And that's what I think we see after God speaks to them. Here's their response in verses 15 and 16. Genuine repentance. It comes in the form... It comes in two forms. One, genuine words. And two, genuine action. This is what real repentance does, by the way. It comes in the form of genuine words and genuine actions. Look at verse 15. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned to us whatever seems good to you. Uh, Do whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So here are the genuine words. Notice the contrition on the part of Israel. Do to us, God, whatever seems good. That's not what they were saying before. Before they were saying, deliver us. Now they're saying, God, we submit ourselves to your control. Whatever you think is best, do it no matter the, what it's going to feel like for us. <coughs> Excuse me. 
it is, I think, yieldedness on the part of Israel and it shows their real desire for change. And those contrite words are followed by action that is consistent with genuine repentance. Look at verse 16. So, what did they do? They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. This is what God is looking for. God's looking for not people who are just going to call out to Him in times of distress. Lots of people do that. He's looking for people who are genuinely repentant. They're willing to turn from their sins, to turn from the false gods of this world and to honor Him with their lips and with their actions. And what does God do? Verses 16-18, through He brings deliverance. God said in verse 13, at the end of the verse, I will no longer deliver you. And I would suggest as long as you have those gods. Well, they got rid of the gods. And notice what God does at the end of verse 16. And He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. And then the sons of Ammon were summoned and they camped in Gilead. Here we start to see some of the setting for the next chapter, which describes for us the deliverance that's going to take place through this major judge named Jephthah. God's going to deliver the people of Israel, but it had to follow because they've played this game for so long. They hadn't really repented. God required that they actually repent this time. Verse verse 16, He could bear their misery no longer. It's the picture of a father who is disciplining his son and who feels the hurt with his son. And we finally see His son bends to him in submission. His disciplinary love turns to affectionate love. We are expected by God to genuinely repent. God delivers those who genuinely repent. So let's talk about repentance here as we finish this evening. I want to say four things about repentance and then then see if we can apply this to ourselves. Number one, genuine repentance is persistent. Genuine repentance is persistent. Suppose you have been explicitly disobeying God for years by committing a particular sin. And you prayed one time, maybe five years ago, that the battle with this sin would be over. Is it true that God forgives that sin? God forgives when we confess our sin, doesn't He? It's true that God does forgive, but the fight must be persistent. And so we must not give up. We must not stop repenting of that sin when it comes back. We must look for ways that we can fight against the sin and persistently do so. Genuine repentance is determined to fight the battle of ongoing sin even when it lasts for years, not just a few days. You see, worldly sorrow recognizes the consequences of sin and wants to get rid of those consequences. And so there are times of contrition, but it's very short-lived. It's only for a matter of days. And if, if the consequences come back and the pull of sin is too strong, worldly sorrow goes right back into it and doesn't care about the the results. But genuine repentance, a person who is genuinely repentant, 
is a person who is persistent with fighting against the power of sin in our lives. Genuine repentance is persistent. Number two. Genuine repentance desires God over His gifts. Genuine repentance desires God over His gifts. I like how one author illustrates this point. He writes, If we say, God, I want to repent, so I need You because I want You to give me X. So, here comes the repentance, and our goal is to get X, which could be a removal of our consequences, which could be maybe the acceptance of some sort of blessing. And the author says that that if we say, I want to repent in order to get X, then X is our real God. But when we say, I want you, God, even if X, Y, or Z is taken away from me, or in the case of consequences, negative consequences, they remain. I want you no matter what. Because you are my true God. You are what I want. This is genuine repentance. Desires God over His gifts. You see, God will not be manipulated. I think that's exactly what Israel was doing in verses 10 through 14. They wanted His gifts, His deliverance. Give it to me. We will repent. We'll cry for mercy so that you give us what we want. And God says, No, I'm not going to give it to you this time. You need to turn from your sins and desire me more than the gifts that I bring. God will not be manipulated. He's not our puppet. He's not our vending machine. He's not our genie in a bottle. God wants us to desire Him over the gifts that He gives us. So genuine repentance does that. Number three, genuine repentance cares more about God than the removal of consequences. Genuine repentance cares more about God than the removal of consequences. Whatever sin is plaguing you right now, Christian, if you're just turning from it because you want to get away from the consequences, that's not enough. Now sometimes, and I think often, God brings about those negative consequences so that we will wake up and not want those in our lives and see the connection for why they're here and clearly turning from our sin is better than not turning from it. But keep in mind that even unbelievers will turn from their sins. Listen to this. They will turn from their sins as long as the consequences, the negative consequences, are not too great. That is, they're happy to turn from their sins when the, when the consequences become too difficult to bear. They start to see that, oh, this is going to affect my fill-in-the-blank, my job, my family. This is going to put me in jail or whatever. And so I'm going to turn from my sins. Is that genuine repentance? Is that mastering sin? Is that seeing the Spirit work in them? So whatever sin is plaguing you, you need to turn from it and care more about God than the removal of the consequences. Is there a sin that's mastering you right now? Is there a sin that's mastering you? Then you need to do more than turn away from the sin. You need to turn to God. That's what repentance is. It's turning from sin to God. 
It's a determination to be free from the mastery of sin, not just the consequences of sin. You understand the difference? We, we, have, we have to determine to not allow sin to be our master. Not just that we want to get away from the consequences, but that we want to get from the mas- away from the mastery of sin. The true test of a genuine believer is that they have repented at the time of salvation and that they are repenting today. That they're ongoing. They're living this ongoing battle of persistent repentance. Unbelievers feel the weight of, con- of the consequences of their sin all the time, but they'll only turn from their sins as long as the consequences are too hard to handle. But if the consequences are not that great, they're happy to stay with the sin. They don't care if they're mastered by sin. I saw a commercial for a horror movie that came out recently. It's called The Purge. And the trailer said something like this. What if one night every year all crimes were legal? And it kind of played to the desires of the wicked. What if we could just do whatever we want and there were no consequences? See, unbelievers are happy to jump into sin if there are no consequences. How much different would we be if one night, one night a year God turned away and just ignored whatever we did? We live in a society that hates restraint and hates the consequences of sin. And if we're honest with ourselves, we often get pulled into the same trap of the devil. That we only hate sin for the consequences that it brings, not for the mastery that it has over us, not for the disgrace that it brings upon our Father. Genuine repentance cares more about God than the removal of negative consequences. And then number four, genuine repentance does not guarantee happy consequences. This one is a little bit more difficult to understand and much more difficult to live. Genuine repentance doesn't guarantee happy consequences. This point ties in with the previous one. While we may desire to be removed from the consequences of our sin, we have to recognize that genuine repentance does not guarantee happy consequences. David genuinely repented after his sin against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against the army of Israel. He genuinely repented. And yet, did did that turn out to his happy consequence? Did Did it turn out to happy circumstances for him? No, his son still died. And most of his children were spiritual wrecks. So, again, it's back to that earlier point that if we're trying to get something out of God, the X, that we're trying to get something and that's why we're repenting, then that's our God. So what we need to be willing to do, and you just think very carefully about this, is that we want to be so far from sin and its mastery over us, that we're willing to, to accept whatever consequences come with that. God lovingly delivers us when we genuinely repent. This is what we read about in verse 13. He could bear it no longer when He sees our misery. 
God's goal is to cause us to turn away from the gods of our own making and to turn to Him. And when we do, life might not be as pleasant as we want it to be. But I can assure you that there is no better life than a life lived in submission to the true and living God. Have you known that for yourself? Have you experienced that for yourself? That there is no better life than a life that's lived in submission to God. Every other kind of life that you can live is a dream. It's not reality. A person who lives like this movie, these people in the movie, as if God doesn't exist, is living in a fantasy, a dream world. So what kind of sin are you facing right now? What kind of sin has the Spirit brought to your mind while I've been preaching? What specific sin has the Spirit been working on in your life, but you have been unwilling to repent of it? What sin is destroying your relationship with God? What sin is destroying your relationship with your family? What sin is keeping you from greater service? God is calling us to genuinely repent. Don't give the canned statement, I'm sorry for my sin, please forgive me. I'll bring on the happy circumstances. Plead with God. See the ugliness of your sin before God. Recognize like David against you and you only have I sinned. And turn to Him and find rescue. Won't you do that tonight? Let's pray. Bow your heads together with me, please. Tonight I've made a strong appeal to you to turn from your sin and I don't want to dismiss this service too quickly because I don't want to give us any excuse not to repent. So I'm going to give us a minute to talk quietly with the Lord so that we can ask Him to restore each of us back to Himself. What sin is God working on in your life needs to be repented of? Now's a great time to talk to God about that. we're thankful that You are serious about sin. We're thankful that You are merciful to those who call out to You in genuine repentance. I pray that You would hear the prayers of our people today. You would be honored in their contrition and their movement to action despite what kind of consequences may come. Lord, may You show them the joy of living a life of submission. Lord, I want to be a better Christian in this way. I want to be persistent in my repentance. So bring to mind the sins that beset me. 
Lord, I want our church to be growing in grace. I want our church to be serious about holiness. And so I pray that You would help us not to take lightly sin and evil. Help us to see with great clarity the sin that is eating away at the various parts of our lives. Help us to turn from it no matter what. And to turn to You. Thankful that in You we can find mercy. That You are slow to anger and abounding in love. You're a great and compassionate God. We look to You for mercy. Lord, pour it out upon Your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.